0: This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now, your On Target host, Linda Swain.
1: And good afternoon, everyone. I trust everybody's doing well as we head into this uh, weekend. Uh, next weekend is the Easter break. So everybody gets a little bit of an extra couple of days there, so that's great to hear. Well, yesterday's provincial budget outlined some pretty big changes coming to the way in which the province delivers health care services. It comes in the wake, of course, of the Health Accord, and that process is ongoing, by the way, which emphasised the need to address the social determinants of health. Well, my guest today is none other than Health Minister John Haggy. Hello. Hello, how are you? Great, Uh, thanks for joining us today. I know it's a busy, busy time. And I know that there's an awful lot in the budget uh, there and I wanted to explore some of those items. Um, The Health Accord, of course, emphasized the social determinants of health. How are they being addressed in this budget?
0: Yeah, I think they are addressed through a whole-of-government approach. The social determinants of health really speak to what it is that make us healthy outside of the healthcare system. We know from surveys going back to Lalonde in 1974 that the bulk of what makes people healthy is not actually the healthcare system, but uh, factors uh, in their lives outside. Some of it's genetic, but a lot of it is related to things like family income at birth, level of uh, highest level of education attained, uh, income, job security, uh, these kind of things which are uh, truly across society. So um, my view of the Health Accord document that we've seen so far is that really this is very much a whole of government uh, issue and not just purely for health, although obviously there are health system uh, changes of some uh, transformative nature that we need to look at too
1: that requires some pretty big changes, some sea changes, if you will. So how do you address that? How do you address poverty? How do you address the number of people um, on social assistance and benefits?
0: Well, I mean, we have um, allocated those to different portfolios over the course of government history. Uh, And so the specific poverty reduction uh, mechanisms, for example, that we have in play, and I think there are over 100 strategies on the books, uh, would be probably better addressed by uh, someone such as uh, Minister Abbott, um, similarly around labour market development and income support, that falls across to other departments. The challenge from a government point of view is actually to bring those entities together uh, at a, a government level and break down some of the, uh, the, the silos, for want of a better word, between uh, different parts of government. Um, from the point of view of the health accord, uh, that's the broad statement in their current document, uh, they may uh, find um, some recommendations to put into their blueprint, which is coming over the course of uh, this month at some point. Um, And so we'll obviously be looking at those to see what mechanisms we can put in place. We did have um, a health in all policies uh, approach through government, prior to this which aim to do the same thing, um, but it's very much more a a policy instrument of cabinet rather than necessarily uh, operational in the way that I would imagine the health accord will want to, uh, to, to look at
1: social determinants of health are one thing and they can't be addressed overnight of course but your purview is uh the delivery of health care services and there there's quite a bit of stuff here not a lot of detail i have to say but there's quite a bit of stuff here suggesting that you know some big changes are coming in that way uh one of them being of course the merger of four health authorities into one how might that work
0: Well, I mean, again, the Health Accord document, the blueprint, will give us some of their suggestions as to how this can be achieved. But looking back historically and looking elsewhere as to how it's been done, by and large, there's been some kind of a transition team put in place. Uh, The current RHA structure continues to function until the transition team has uh, done its work. And then you uh, um, you amalgamate and and bring them in uh, under a a new governance structure. Uh, I think this has all sorts of advantages for consistency for, um, uh, you know, each area in the province being um, able to access similar levels of care and uh, uh, similar quality of services. Um, And it does away with kind of a piecemeal approach. On the back end, it certainly allows a considerable amount of streamlining of back office functions. The important thing here is that it's done in a way that doesn't interrupt or throw off any elements of frontline healthcare and indeed that's certainly uh, something we're going to work hard to avoid some of these transitions though that you talk about in relation not just to social determinants but also to the healthcare system itself this is the work of a 5 to 10 year accord, it's not going to be a a switch thrown overnight Um, we started in the budget with some of the things that we knew from our discussions with the health accord task force uh, made sense and indeed there had been policies of this government uh, before, Uh, community uh, collaborative teams for example is something we've been getting off the ground prior to COVID uh, and and uh, uh, the hiatus there has has uh, kind of finished, and we've moved on that. And there are two new teams up and running in, in Eastern Health and very successfully uh, allocating residents there to primary care providers uh, that, where they receive team-based care. Uh, and um, the Patient Connect NL, which is the portal for registry, will open up for the uh, two we announced for the rest of the island, Western and Central, uh, they'll open up in a over the course of the coming weeks uh, in advance of those clinics uh, beginning operation later on in the year. But we want to build on that as well. So it's a work of it's a work over time, uh, and some of the issues in the budget are to deal with the short term funding for those things. But they're um, they're annualised. So uh, you know it's uh, so many million for CTCs, and that will then be baked into the budget for the regional health authority. Um, plural now, and singular in the future.
1: That streamlining process you mentioned, um, will that result in cost savings?
0: Um, It would be nice if it did. I would be... um I would be much happier in some respects with simply getting the money that we're spending, buying better value, so that we can redirect some of that money to deal with some of the requirements that the health accord is going to make in things like virtual care. And while we started with, you know, another $3 million for virtual care ERs in Central to deal with um, uh, the, the the more pressing issues there, um, you know, virtual care got a real kickstart from COVID. So we're further ahead in virtual care than we would otherwise have been uh, absent the pandemic quite frankly Uh, so it it is going to be a slow process um, in some respects uh, in, in the sense it's not going to be the flick of a switch.
1: There are concerns, though, uh, when you talk about these kinds of amalgamations that uh, people may be worried about how it's going to affect their particular region and the specific needs in certain regions. And And I've already heard people say, you know, oh, this just means that the whole system is going to become more St. John's centric. Uh, what's your response to that?
0: Well, I think uh, that both the Health Accord and, and myself personally, I mean, I represent a district in the centre of the island. Uh, I worked in health care for a long time here, and I know that... The value and importance of local input and the discussions that um particularly central and and, and also western have done uh, on the island in terms of community engagement to understand what the community's expectations are what their needs are what their wants are uh, and uh, that discussion about how to move in that direction so my view of the new structure would be one in which there was, you know, vibrant, consistent, uh, and uh, um, direct engagement with uh, community councils or community groups, however they're defined under the structure, so that the decision makers are actually uh, in the same room, uh, virtually or real time, uh, with these groups and can hear their concerns and can explain their approach. Uh, and by that kind of negotiation and dialogue come to To an understanding of what the others can provide, you know, what each can provide to the other.
1: You mentioned these collaborative care teams, and I want to ask you a little bit more about that when we come back after the break. My guest today on On Target is Health Minister John Hackey. We'll be back right after this.
0: Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at one on your VOCM.
1: My guest today on On Target is Health Minister John Hagee. He's on the line with us now. And um, John, you mentioned earlier these collaborative health care teams or clinics. There's uh, two, I believe, in the St. John's region. How do they operate? What do they do exactly? Explain them for anybody who might not know.
0: That's a very good question and happy to do that. I mean, those aren't the only ones we've got. We certainly had, I think, uh, uh, six in operation prior to COVID, uh, various locations across uh, mainly the island. Um, Essentially what they are is they're a a health home for an individual or their family. Um, The uh, primary care team provides the right provider for the right problem at the right time so um, you know you may have an issue with your diabetes control uh, and that may be something fairly straightforward so you would be channeled maybe to see a nurse practitioner or maybe a a diabetic educator because that's both uh, both those practitioners are able to deal with those things Um, you may uh, find that you have a mental health or addictions issue and there may be a day there where there's a mental health and addictions counsellor available virtually or in reality. Uh, I'd like to see pharmacists in there and maybe optometrists as well providing those kind of services and possibly even counselling but the the primary care piece is the key and so uh, those problems that needed elevating to the skill set of a primary care physician uh, would obviously be seen by them. So you'd have a place to go um, and, and pretty well like in a lot of rural areas uh, this approach works where uh, you have a team of doctors or a team of um primary care providers, including nurse practitioners, and you see um, the right person on the day you go. It may not be the same person you saw last time, but they have a shared record uh, and uh, you get to know the faces. Um, That's basically what uh, my vision and I think everyone else's is of these uh, collaborative team clinics. It's the right place to go if you have a health issue.
1: Does that fill the gap, though, that some people are experiencing with a without access to a family physician? Uh, family physicians, of course, it's all about continuum of care, and you develop a relationship with your family doctor. Your family doctor gets to know you and your entire family sometimes over the course of years, and when you go in and say, you know, I've had these headaches lately, and, and you're your family physician might say well that's really unusual for you Uh, and they would know immediately that that's something a little out of the norm whereas if you went to see a doctor you hadn't seen before they might say oh well take a few tylenol you know what i mean so do they fill those kinds of gaps
0: oh yes i mean this is the way that physicians new graduates of the residency program are actually trained to practice in this kind of environment Um, because the team gets to know you this is the place where you go from cradle to grave for your care and the team that is there uh, just like uh, you know primary care providers may change and nurse practitioners may change if you're going there for 60 years or 50 years then you will obviously see turnover of people there but it's the same concept you go in the team becomes familiar with you through your regular visits. not everybody goes very frequently but we do have a uh, modest uh, number of uh, chronically ill individuals in this, uh, this province who do require regular services of primary care and this allows the physician in the group or the physicians in the group to concentrate on using their skills at the highest level to do what only family physicians can do to sort out you know treatment regimes for five different complaints uh, within one individual patient and it allows the uh, more straightforward complaints and problems uh, people with one uh, illness as it were, hypertension or diabetes to be managed by uh, people whose skill set allows them to do that, so diabetic educators hypertension nurses or nurse practitioners So, um, everybody helps there's no shortage of cross cover, Uh, there's no concern about you having your holidays as a health provider, the healthy places to work as well as places where people can receive advice about health and treatment for conditions as required it it does everything the old um, solo family practitioner used to do but it doesn't rely on one person being everything to everybody
1: so how many of these clinics do we have currently operating and how many do you hope to see
0: my uh, estimate at the moment of those operating is somewhere in the region of 10. The health accord suggests that we may need a number nearer 30. Uh, so um, uh, these teams would service a population base of around seven to 9,000. So obviously you'd have more of them in the metro area because of population density. And in actual fact, in more rural areas, generating a, a population base of 6,000 could actually be a challenge. So I think there's going to have to be a local flavor uh, for some of these uh, servicing smaller communities. But the idea, again, is, you know, the right care from the right person in the right place at the right time.
1: There was an issue that was raised this week involving um, nurse practitioners. You mentioned nurse practitioners just then. Uh, in the Corner Brook area, there are a, a, a small group of nurse practitioners who are operating a clinic in Corner Brook, and they're sort of filling the gap uh, since three family practice clinics regionally, uh, recently closed. And um, many of the patients that went to those family practice clinics now going up to this new facility, but the billing issue has come up. MCP prohibits nurse practitioners from billing the system. How can that be addressed to fill those important gaps?
0: We were in discussions at a very preliminary stage before COVID with the RNU, who are the uh, sort of bargaining and representative body ultimately for the Nurse Practitioners Association and nurse practitioners in general, about what were called nurse practitioner-led clinics. And this is what they have established out there by the sound of it, but they've done it uh, in advance of any kind of framework being established uh, the issue of um, integration it's how to bring those people and link them uh, in a way that you would say with a physician led clinic uh, but to do it in the context of the collaborative team approach and certainly uh, we were waiting for information from the RNU uh, about uh, the Ottawa um, the Ontario models uh, that have been used in this regard um, uh, we uh, we've had discussions with the Nurse Practitioners Association they're not wedded to the idea of you know MCP billing and, and that's great because the NLMA themselves uh, as recently as three years ago uh, kind of came to the realization as we had done that fee-for-service does not work for primary care and a lot of the negotiations in the current um, agreement um, were around how to reward how to compensate family physicians for primary care that did involve billing fee-for-service it doesn't work in primary care and so there's certainly a desire and I think a desire from these individuals in Cornerbrook to not go down that road and make the same mistakes but they've kind of gone ahead and launched absent a framework and uh, it's it's hard to catch up because there's a lot of consultation there that needs to be done uh, with the nurses union and they're keen to be very involved in this.
1: So can this be resolved, you know, in a timely manner? By the sounds of it, this will take some time.
0: there are some some options for sure uh, that can help in the early days but the issue is that we need to get the framework right even if it's an ad hoc one for this group but it has to be done uh, under the terms of collective bargaining really if nothing else but it certainly has to be done in discussion with the RNU uh, and uh, those discussions uh, are were, were really hijacked by COVID and and certainly lately by the RNU's need to bring them members' concerns about their burnout and stress uh, to the departments uh, and the think tank and stuff like that that happened recently. So uh, totally on board with the idea of nurse practitioner-led clinics. The problem is operationalizing it in a way that works for them and for the patients in Cornerbrook.
1: You mentioned that uh, the process was hijacked by COVID, but uh, there's another um, hijacking that occurred in the healthcare system, so to speak. That was the cyber attack. And uh, while, uh, you know, the people... Government and uh, the health authorities were informing people about it back in November, um, it didn't become real for a lot of people until they start receiving their letters, and they're getting them now. Yes. Uh, what kind of assurances can you give to people who are getting these letters now saying that your private health information has been accessed?
0: Well, there's two groups, really. There's that group that you've mentioned, and certainly we have no evidence from our experts who we've retained that any of this information has been misused uh, in any way so that's the first thing the second thing is that there was a group who also had some financial information uh, that was uh, um, misappropriated Uh, for them we have um, uh, an offer uh, for credit monitoring Uh, certainly in the first instance for five years um, that has been available um, through uh, 1-800 numbers and websites for each of the regional health authorities so uh, i would encourage any Anybody who feels that they're in that boat or has got a letter advising them of that, that they take uh, uh, advantage of that because it's free to them. Uh, we've paid for it in advance. Uh, and in actual fact, the uptake has only been modest at the moment. I'm only aware the last time I asked of about half 13, 13,500 individuals who have, uh, who have accessed that service.
1: My guest today on On Target is Health Minister John Hagee. We're talking about uh, some of the many issues that face his department and in particular the budget that came down yesterday. I want to talk a little bit about air and road ambulance services when we come back right after this. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Our guest today is Health Minister John Hagee. And uh, John, there's been a number of issues, of course, raised about air and road ambulance services, whether it be staffing levels, uh, red alerts, urban versus rural, private versus public. We still have ambulance services, of course, that are voluntary in some areas. The province announced plans yesterday to modernize and integrate the system into a centralized medical dispatch. What does that mean?
0: Basically, um, the Health Accord and our own uh, internal research and analysis has shown that um, the best way of um, uh, improving the service to the population, as well as getting value for money, would be to have a single coordinated uh, ambulance system uh, with both ground and air ambulance. Uh, So, what that will look like, um, there are options, and um, I'm sure some of these will be painted in the uh, uh, the implementation plan from the, um, the health accord. The centralised medical dispatch is, actual fact, um, a, a process that's already underway uh, and was recommended in a previous report of the uh, the ambulance uh, uh, system. Uh, so it exists in Metro. Uh, it's computer aided dispatch. It's cloud based, expandable. And what we need to do with that is to uh, is to build on that and move it out across the province Um, the real key to um, emergency care and rural care is the ability to put um, treatment in your kitchen uh, if you are acutely unwell so you don't simply have to wait to be transported to wherever the facility might be uh, the uh, the the team on the rig uh, would be in a position to start uh, treatment we started down that road some years ago and i would say now that two-thirds if not more of our uh, staff on frontline ambulances, our primary care paramedic standard. We repatriated the advanced care paramedic training program that CNA did in Qatar but never actually offered in Newfoundland and Labrador. We brought that back to the province and we expect to have some graduates this year from the first class and then that will be another 24 on a on an annualized basis. It's an 18-month course. Advanced care paramedics have a really broad skill set. They can uh, Uh, initiate treatment under their own protocols, they can administer uh, thrombolysis, clot busters for heart attacks uh, in your kitchen, uh, these kind of things, and I think that will make a very robust, high-quality ambulance system. We need to deal with the fragmentation of the air ambulance, it's currently uh, provided by government air services uh, with um, two aircraft and supplemented by uh, contracts with um, private operators because um, the demand there has increased. Um, The kind of patients they move as well has changed significantly. At one time it was acutely ill um, patients on ventilators, on life support, um, but now a significant number of those individuals are unwell but are being moved in for things like cardiac catheters uh, and that kind of stuff, so we need to look at how those aircraft are crewed, uh, who provides them, uh, and how you know we uh, we deal with the issue of uh, you know running aircraft in government. Uh, so I think what we uh, would look to is the Health Accord implementation plan, and then work in our own department to generate some options so that government can make a decision as to how they wish to proceed uh, with both of those areas.
1: Uh, So that would account for some of the money then for Air Ambulance specifically?
0: Well, the base budget for air ambulance had never changed over um, several years. We topped it up on a regular basis. What we've done now is we have established the base budget for the ambulance program at what we've been actually spending. So that's been a $3.3 million increase um, to the base budget. And that reflects uh, the, the decisions we made to use aircraft to move patients, say, from the west coast of the island, rather than putting them in an am- a ground ambulance. So um, that demand is slowly increased uh, for, uh, uh, for the, uh, that service over the course of the last few years as well.
1: Dr. Susan McDonald yesterday when we were talking to her uh, during the, um, uh, the scrum in the uh, main lobby area referenced uh, the crisis in family medicine in the province and she highlighted central Newfoundland in particular. She says it's one of the worst affected regions in the province and uh, we've had many stories over the years not just family physicians but specialists as well dating back. Uh, central Health has uh, had some difficulty in recruiting so it seems what's the situation there? How is it being addressed?
0: Well several things from the the government point of view from the department point of view we just negotiated a $36 million pay rise for physicians for their 1300 members they have Atlantic parity Um, we announced last fall a series of recruitment and retention measures which are some are in place and some are nearly complete Um, so that would include for example a $100,000 non-repayable loan for any new family medicine resident who wishes to set up a collaborative practice in the province uh, as long as they stay for five years it would obviously be prorated if they left earlier we provide new family physicians with a minimum income guarantee for the first two years of their practice hearing that they were concerned because they didn't have any experience of working in a self-employed environment Uh, so we've tried to take that uh, off their shoulders Um, We have uh, announced, I think, another $14 million uh, over the course of um, this particular budget year, which will become annualized. Uh, We are uh, spending $3 million for two virtual ER hubs, one in Gander, one in Grand Falls, Windsor, that will service the smaller communities. The facts of the case are, is... We have a premium uh, payment for family physicians who wish to work in rural and isolated communities, uh, and uh, it's a question now of going out and marketing that. And that was the piece about the office, the secretariat of um, uh, health pro- health provider recruitment. The ADM appointment, am I understanding from Executive Council, is that this is nearly complete. We have started uh, populating uh, some of the staff positions uh, and um, will be hitting the ground running with a marketing plan uh, which uh, we've had uh, designed to compete at the national level uh, uh, with, um, with other jurisdictions. So there is a lot of robust activity there with the Medical Association. Uh, the challenge is that whilst having significant increase in numbers of physicians over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, it's been a challenge even with these incentives and even with these new ones to attract people to rural communities. We've engaged with MNL uh, and um, in my own district, we have a, a local group with the, uh, the municipality uh, through my office and the health authority, because you might be recruiting a doctor, but you've actually got to attract a family because a lot of these individuals now come with families. And their first question is, you know, where are the kids? going to go to school, uh, what's the hockey rink like or, you know, are the ballet lessons in the community or, you know, the tennis courts, these kind of things. Uh, it, it's a lifestyle thing. So there's a role in here for everyone. Uh, and I think there are some really positive things coming out. Uh, we, in conjunction with the Accord Task Force, do recognize that some of the smaller communities are going to be very challenged because they have been used to having a, uh, a doctor living in the community. And whilst, you know, the health authorities now or the health authority will be in a position of providing primary care to that community. It's not going to be as easy to get a physician to actually live in every community that has one currently.
1: What about the provisions uh, announced for virtual ER services in Central Newfoundland in particular? Will that complement or replace in-person services?
0: That's to complement. One of the things about in-person services is we've seen a huge sea change driven by COVID. Um, The uh, virtual care uh, through COVID uh, has ballooned. It it really got a a kick in the pants in in a way that we'd hoped the uptake would pick up, but it really swung rather the other way in some areas. And the complaints, the problems I'm hearing now from uh, patients is that their doctor will not see them face to face. Now, the decision is a negotiation between doctor and patient, so I obviously wouldn't insert myself into that. Um, But in terms of the ER specifically, I think the idea there is to provide support uh, to um, uh, out-of-hospital providers even, because quite frankly, uh, we do have a system uh, called Provincial Medical Oversight, uh, which Um, uh, needs to be supported. And with the new um, uh, radio system that was referenced in the budget for first responders, uh, it is my uh, hope uh, and desire to piggyback uh, healthcare onto that for the frontline ambulances so that we have secure communications, for example, and a paramedic in uh, Conagra, for example, uh, can seek advice from uh, you know, a, uh, a, a specialist in emergency medicine uh, over the radio uh, to help direct care on the road uh, while they're going up what is a long highway.
1: My guest today on On Target is Health Minister John Haggie. And, John, you mentioned COVID. I'm going to ask you about that in the coming uh, segment. But uh, I want to touch on a few other budgetary items as well. We'll be back right after this
0: every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin the cabin party with Brian O'Connell Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM
1: my guest today is Health Minister John Haggie and um, this is an item that came out of the budget yesterday what's the rationale behind a single health faculty
0: well <clears throat> this is to leverage collaboration Uh, The move in um, uh, research world, particularly uh, in health, has been around patient orientated outcome research. Um, These uh, uh, unified uh, health science faculties are real incubators for that kind of work it allows collaboration much more easily between pharmacists um, social work pharmacist medicine pharmacist nursing these kind of things Uh, and um, the the benefits are uh, greater uh, than the uh, the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts kind of thing on the back end as well there is a significant uh, uh, opportunity here for streamlining uh, single payroll mechanism, uh, single uh, financing, uh, shared purchasing, that kind of thing, and streamlining administration. So it's been done in other areas in uh, in Canada. Uh, Queen's University is one that leaps to mind immediately. Um, and, and there are others as well. So it, it makes operational sense, but it also makes research and collaboration sense in a big way.
1: Now you mentioned COVID. We can't have a conversation with the health minister without talking about COVID. <laughs> and you know, the people who call us still to this day saying, is there going to be a COVID briefing? People became addicted to them. But yep. what is the current COVID situation? How can we get a good sense of what's really happening out there when so many people are only testing positive either through rapid tests or not at all?
0: No, I, I think it's, I think there's been yet another shift. I mean, one of the things that was constant about COVID was that we had to change what we did. We uh, we adapted as the situation changed. The situation changed uh, late last year, early this year. uh, And really uh, it was brought about by the arrival of the Omicron variant. So uh, the metric to watch at the moment is hospital admissions. And those are bouncing up and down. We have modeling that suggests that we uh, may see between 40 and 60. We've certainly seen between 40 and I think 47 was the highest we've seen so far. That number fluctuates rapidly day to day. And that of itself is good because that means people are recovering and leaving hospital or no longer being considered infectious or problematic because of their COVID. And those rapid changes day to day, according to our modeling team, would suggest that given with you the the rate of rise of admissions has slowed that maybe uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel here and so um, uh, Dr. Fitzgerald and her public health team's advice is basically (laughs) to hold fast and uh, things are um, uh, you know things seem to be manageable at the moment. The flip side of that of course is that we have an exhausted, tired and very dedicated workforce in the healthcare system uh, and this way with the numbers has arrived at a time when you know two years in uh, and they're tired we see now somewhere between 550 and 590 healthcare workers out of the system on a day-by-day basis uh, because of covid themselves or symptoms that is is problematic uh, in terms of um, service delivery. So the uh, CEOs and the regional health authorities have been told to uh, manage the situation by sort of dialing up and dialing down on the procedures that are a little bit more discretionary, the, the planned procedures, the elective ones. That will obviously add to potentially a backlog, but at the end of the day, our problems are twofold. We have people on stretchers and emergency departments who need beds. And we have to care for the caregivers, because if we don't, there will be nobody left to care for the people who need care.
1: And on that note, when can we expect to see some relief in terms of working through those surgical backlogs? I know you've spoken to this before, but then everything changed with Omicron. Are staffing levels still having an impact on that? Because the nurses union has suggested that these were problems even before COVID.
0: Yes, I mean, we have a, a seasonal health care system in Newfoundland and Labrador. Speaking from my own experience as a, as a clinician, as a surgeon, I often found it quite difficult to persuade people to come in for planned surgery during the summer months. Uh, and indeed, the staff traditionally would look to have their holidays over the summer months, just as, as a lot of people would. And so there was a, a kind of natural rundown uh, during the summer. I think the staffing situation at the has been exacerbated as i say by staff off with covid but we've also like every other jurisdiction in canada seen a significant shift in the way um, healthcare workers want to work and this move towards casualization or early retirement we actually uh, have commissioned uh, some research uh, after discussion with the rnu and others about Uh, uh, the attitudes and approaches of the workforce. And I think that RFP actually closes uh, today. Uh, So um, we are hoping that in the not too distant future, we'll have some concrete information about what it is that appeals to healthcare workers Um, and we certainly uh, want to do this with physicians as well and we we have uh, that as part of our recruitment strategy because if we can understand how the attitude in healthcare workers has changed because of COVID then we can tailor our work conditions hopefully to make them more attractive for them to stay because these are skills the province has invested in in a significant way Um, uh, you know memorials training uh, the uh, CNA training for all of these healthcare workers is very heavily subsidized by the taxpayer and uh, you know it's it's a huge benefit to all of us to have it that way but at the end of the day we don't want to see that hemorrhage continue of people who decide that for some reason that we need to know about that they don't want to work anymore
1: And those changes is an attitude that I think is is, uh, um, true right across the board since COVID began. Um, uh, Will that federal government money uh, help in in addressing backlogs? I do know a couple of people right now who are awaiting surgeries and no idea when they're going to get them.
0: No, uh, the, that is that is problematic and I sympathise with those uh, those individuals. Um, the, the challenge that we've got is uh, the Feds have offered money. Uh, we don't know if it comes with any particular strings attached and how we have to spend it and if it's supposed to be targeted at any particular kind of backlog. Those discussions are ongoing with the federal government at the moment to try and clarify that. Um, but at the end of the day, we've got to have staff to pay. Uh, so um, uh, it's it's a, uh, it's a quandary and the CEOs and the department will work through that. Uh, but our priority at the moment has to be very clearly to get people on stretchers into beds, to get nurses to have some kind of respite uh, and uh, to, to quite frankly, flip back to COVID and consider what the impacts are going to be of, you know, maybe another booster campaign because we're still waiting to hear from Dr. Fitzgerald's team about some recommendations in the light of the the NACI, the uh, Advisory Committee on Immunization's recommendations about a possible second booster or fourth shot.
1: When When might we hear more about that?
0: Um, I think we will likely hear something uh, maybe next week. Uh, I do know Dr. Fitzgerald's team have been actively considering uh, what the proposals mean. Uh, certainly, I think, uh, as it were, the lower hanging fruit would be uh, to uh, to start with um, a long-term care. Uh, in terms of staff for delivery of the vaccine, that's a simpler problem to deal with. Um, then after that, personal care homes. Uh, it depends on the criteria that Dr. Fitzgerald and her team um, uh, approve in terms of whether there's a, a, an age cut off or whether it's disease related. So uh, I'm looking forward to getting that in the near future.
1: Minister Haggy, I do appreciate your time. I know you're very busy these days, especially with the budget rollout. Uh, thank you very much.
0: You're more than welcome, Linda. I hope you have a good weekend.
1: Same to you. And we'll be back on Monday. Uh, do j- join us then. Uh, thanks a lot, everyone. Stay safe out there and enjoy your weekend.